Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? Great. I heard some greats and some goods. I hope that you are doing well, whether you're online or joining us here in person. Perhaps you're a guest or you've worshipped here at Sunridge for any amount of time. We are so, so glad that you'd spend a portion of your weekend worshiping here with us. My name is Jed, and it's an absolute privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning, we are in the second week of our December series that is entitled, It's a Wonderful Mess. And last week, when Britt kicked this series off, I was sitting side stage, so I didn't see it physically, but I heard him request via hands how many of you have seen the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. And based off of the uncomfortable laughter, it appears that there are many in this room who have some catching up to do. How many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Oh, well, today, apparently in the last week, you have participated in some extracurricular homework. Maybe you've seen it in years past, but perhaps some of you decided you would hop on Amazon Prime and, and check that out this week. Well, we are paralleling scenes from that movie with things that we see in the scripture, but mostly to emphasize that when we think about the messiness of life, that God is in the very midst of that with us, and perhaps, perhaps his presence there can be seen and felt and experienced in profound and important ways. Well, this morning, we're going to kick off a scene from the movie, and maybe you have not seen it before, but even if you haven't, it can still pull at your heartstrings. The protagonist of this movie, George Bailey, is about to depart for his honeymoon with his recently wedded wife, Mary, and while they're sitting in a taxi cab, they look outside and see that a nearby bank scores of people are rushing, and it's frenetic and frenzied, and they talk amongst themselves and figure out that there might be something happening, and it's a bank run, and if you've never heard of a bank run, you can just think about some of what happened to us several years ago when stores were flooded and grocery places were packed and people were concerned that they would not have enough. Well, in the case of a bank run, not having enough cash on hand would be the problem. And so at this point, George looks over to Mary and says, I've got to go over to my building. He owns a mortgage business because he's concerned that people that have loans through there are going to want cash out and rightly so. And we know that the town mogul, this scary businessman named Harry F. Potter, is taking advantage of the pandemonium and is trying to get the local people to withdraw their loans from local businesses so that these places might foreclose. And so he presents George Bailey with an offer to have him give his business up to him. And so the scene that you're going to see concerns George and all these people who've gathered inside of this mortgage space. It's clipped up a little bit. It's roughly a minute. 
I selected the in-color version. I'm sorry for those of us who are purists and wanted the black and white, but maybe it'll help us a little bit. Let's watch that here. We can get through this thing, all right. We, we've got to stick together, though. We've got to have faith in each other. But my husband hasn't worked in over a year, and I need money. How am I going to live until the bank opens? i got Dr. Bill's to pay. I need cash. I can't keep my kids on faith. I've got to have... How much do you need? Hey! I got $2,000. Here's $2,000. This will tide us over to the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? We're going to make it, George. Six. It'll never close us up today. Five, four, three, two... One bingo! We made it! Close the door, you sit. We made it. Look, look, we're still in business. We still got two bucks left. Well, look, let's have some of that. Let's celebrate. A toast. A toast to Mama Dollar and to Papa Dollar. And if you want to keep this old building alone in business, you better have a family real quick. I wish they were rabbits. I wish they were too. Okay, let's put them in the safe and see what happens. <laughs> I just love that part. <laughs> if any of you read this weekend's email, I asked, do you have, or I should say, what is your happy dance? And you just witnessed a happy dance. Now, I know some of you don't like the dance floors at weddings, but I can guarantee you, if you are a human being at some point in your life, you have spontaneously broken out into a happy dance. A happy dance comes when you have experienced or received very unexpectedly good news. And I actually found a clip of myself from 2009 where I'm doing a little happy dance, but I did not cut that for you. I didn't. I was very close. I was very close. It was rendered in 240p. I don't know if you, uh, re we're in 4K now. I don't even know what any of those things mean. 4K is like better than what my eyes can see with my contacts. Uh, but 240p, you just wonder, how did we even watch that stuff? It's like, what is even happening on the camera? I'm not going to show you my happy dance. But instead, as we find parallel to that scene, we are going to root ourselves in a place in Scripture where we have an individual who, after months of being silenced because of a lack of faith in what God could do, bursts forth in song and perhaps even dance at the arrival of his son. And his son isn't Jesus the Messiah. His son is someone else who would come before him. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. And Heath read a portion of this at our call to worship. And Lee read a portion of this when she prepared the way for this message. And it says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior, literally a horn of salvation, for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus, he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of his salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins." 
And by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. Isn't that beautiful? I, some of us have had the opportunity to witness a human being's first breaths or cries on earth. It is a miracle every single time. And so this would have been miraculous in and of itself, but for Zechariah and Elizabeth to see their son, John, and to affirm that that would be his name and that John would suddenly be able to bring forth this song, this beautiful song that speaks to the redemptive and salvific history of the God of Israel and his ability throughout the generations to remain faithful to promises and to a covenant that would seem like he would not have to follow through on those things. What a beautiful song of worship and dance. And we see earlier in this very same chapter, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and what is known as the Magnificat, she is singing herself a song she hears that she is going to give birth to this child. In the Christmas season, it would make so much sense for us to read this passage of Scripture and try and emulate that happy dance of sorts. To have this joyful, exuberant, gratitude-filled response and expression of who God is and all that he has done in and through Jesus the Christ. However, if you look at that scene from the movie where they're trying to overthrow the tyranny of Harry F. Potter, or if you consider the situation of Zechariah and Elizabeth as they are living under the oppression of Roman rule, or if you think about where you might be in your life right now, perhaps you might not feel as though this is the happiest of times. Maybe you don't feel like you have the ability to break forth in this type of worshipful response to God. And if that's you, or you know someone who occupies that headspace, I hope that you don't feel so alone this morning. Last week, Britt's title for his message was Jesus Came for the Messian. If you haven't, you can go on our archive and listen to how he speaks about through the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew records. We see that all throughout the families and the peoples that are in Jesus' lineage and heritage that God chose the messiest, most broken, most sinful people. And so it would feel really, really good today after Jesus came for the mess to have a message title that's like, Jesus came and cleaned up all the mess. That would be really, really great. And in fact, I, if we weren't so long on uh, that first video clip, I would have shown another clip, but that felt like a little bit too much. So I'm just going to read the transcript of this very moving commercial. And then at the end, maybe uh, we can guess together who it is describing. Just imagine some really dramatic music in the background. No one can say for certain where he came from, but they're certain he was born to clean. See, 
While most little boys always find ways to make messes, he'd always find ways to get rid of them. He had plenty of friends, but a different idea of fun. And as he grew older, his curiosity grew with him, so he left home. He loved to learn more, but when he had learned everything he could in a classroom, his passion drove him further. Until the day he finally came, he learned everything there was to learn about getting rid of grime. The amazing part, he wasn't doing it for himself. He was doing it to help others, no matter who they were, where they lived, or how big the mess was. It's hard to say what might have been exaggerated over time, but one thing's for sure. When it comes to clean, there's only one mister. <laughs> Mr. Clean, anyone? Like the scariest man to appear in your home ever? Like in the tightest white clothes and just able to take care of all of the mess? We perhaps envision Jesus in that way. And understandably so, we want the presence of Christ and his Holy Spirit to reform and transform and fix and remedy and repair what is wrong and dirty about us. However, when we look at the life of Christ, we see that his arrival and his presence doesn't just clean things up. And so the title of our message this morning is Jesus Came and It Got Messier. And when I say Jesus came and it got messier, I'm not necessarily saying Jesus came and things got more sinful, even though from a historical perspective, the reality is when Jesus' contemporaries saw him, his presence did mean that it got more sinful because of his ability to be with types of people he should not be with. However, for the purpose of this message and this morning, when I say Jesus came and it got messier, I'm referring to messier as in more complicated, not as neat and tidy as perhaps we would want it to be. And in order to show us that, we are going to be looking at that first song from Zechariah and the expectation of what John the Baptist, his son, would participate in. And then we fast forward 30 or so years down the line, and this child that was saying over is now where? Do you know where John is now? In Luke chapter 7? He's in prison. In Luke chapter 7, verse 18, it says the disciples of John reported all these things to him. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Remember, when Zechariah and Elizabeth and all the people in their town have this boy, John, arrive on the scene and this song is sung over him, their expectation is that some way, somehow, hopefully rather quickly, he would pronounce the way forward so that the one coming behind him, Jesus, his cousin, would be the one to usher in their people into a new and final reality that was the expression of God's fullness, the consummation of all things. I'm using really, really big words to just say in their lifetime, they expected that everything would be made right and good. 
that they would get to live in peace and security, that they wouldn't have to worry about threats of outside invasion, that they could go to their homes at night and feel settled with the food that they would get to eat and the songs they would get to sing, that they could walk outside in their communities, and there wouldn't be fear of what is going to happen next. That is at the core of deliverance. We might think about just some great sweeping thing, and even though those things are there, the messianic expectation was that life could be right and full, that there could be security, there could be real security. And for any of us that go to homes at nighttime after really stressful, long days, we can understand and appreciate how nice it would be to not worry about what's happening in the world and all the news that's bombarding us and all the stress and the strain and our fears of what is going to happen next and the history of the Israelites and their nation, God's presence with them. Their hope was that he could provide a sense of stability and wholeness and rightness. And Jesus was supposed to bring that to their time and place in a very tangible, noticeable way. And instead, we have John the Baptist in prison. So here, we're going to move into our fill in the blanks. When it feels like it, God, or life is getting messier, you can let others hear you ask the hard questions. Notice again what John sent his disciples to ask, are you the one or should we be waiting for someone else? His whole life was supposed to be preparing the way for this Jesus and at a very deep and desperate time as he is sitting there in prison, he calls to his friends, his disciples, John, and asks them to go to Jesus and say, are you sure? Are you really the one? Because I'm stuck here in this prison. I'm not quite too sure about this. And for those of us who are in any sort of season or space where we are struggling, perhaps our inclination is to not want to present those doubts or those questions because it how might reflect on us. And I think John the Baptist could understand that. He was a man who was wild. The way that he's described in Mark chapter 1, he, he made his clothes out of camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. Some of us love the great outdoors. Some of us reset really, really well when we're atop a mountain or by the ocean or out in the desert. And John was in the Judean wilderness. And I just imagine that he had his way through that wilderness. Perhaps he had those rocks that he appreciated to sit on the most, those places where he can meditate in the presence of God. He had chosen deliberately to separate himself from society, to live a life of what we would call asceticism, where he would reject or deny himself of all sorts of regular pleasures. He was the epitome of someone who said, I'm going to not partake or do of those things so that I can dedicate myself to the work of God. And here he is. He knows all of that freedom and all of that self-restraint. And I wonder what that tension was like for him as he questioned, should I ask my friends to ask Jesus if he is who he says he is. 
And several years ago, I, I got an email from someone who was looking for a way to get connected. And it sounds like it, rooted is the place to start. This was from this person. And then he wrote, personally, I've been struggling with Jesus' role in my life. As I read through the Old and New Testament, things are mentioned that I wonder, why are they even there? Why do they even say if Jesus is God? For instance, why does Jesus have to prove himself to be God? And why is he not already sitting at the right hand of God? Or why does the Spirit of God have to descend on Jesus like a dove if he is God? Or why does God need to put his Spirit upon him? Am I praying to God or Jesus? It seems the deeper I dive into the Word, the more questions I have. I wish this wasn't the case. It'd be nice to be able to discuss these issues. Don't you love that honesty? I mean, truly, don't you love that? And if you're sitting there trying to remember if you wrote me this email, <laughs> it's probably because you can resonate with a lot of those questions there. Now, don't, don't freak out here because it gets a little messier. I'm going to read you some of the things that I wrote back. I talked about how I love these thoughts and questions. And, and I've not only wrestled, but continue to wrestle with these quandaries and similar ones. I think that often our Trinitarian tradition and language makes this stuff especially difficult in addition to how we look at Scripture. And here are some of my favorite head-scratchers. Did Jesus pray to himself? When Jesus died, did God die? Did a part of God die? If Jesus was with God in the beginning, was he physically there? What should that even mean? And I know you're probably sitting here and you're like, what in the world? <laughs> what is Jen? I'm sharing these things with you, not so that you freak out about what I'm thinking about in my head, but because I would hope that you would know anyone that tries to make claim or lay claim of just neat and tidy, just packaging that stuff up, there's, there's a lot of pride, I think, that comes into that. And I'll tell you, I feel very, very comfortable and well-versed and able in the most orthodox way to speak to doctrine that would relate to our Trinitarian theology and the legacy and the history. We can go back and even talk about the events that would surround this long process of why these creeds would need to be formed. And that's for another message. But the reason why I share some of these things with you is because I think if in that moment after hearing that question from all of you or one of you, I said, I'm sorry. What's wrong with you? How do you not understand three in one? How do you not get this stuff? Haven't you heard about the egg or the water? Which are modalistic, by the way, so that's a whole other thing. We have this tendency in us to want to suppress these things, but it's important, I think we see, to let others hear us ask the hard questions because of the witness it might bear to God's ability to handle what feels messy. Let's keep reading in this story. In verse 20, when the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to ask, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? And Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. 
And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Jesus is surrounded by crowds of people and these disciples of John, and there's already some brewing controversy or history here because these disciples of John, these followers of John, at different points in time have been pit against the disciples of Jesus. They've been asked, why do you fast and the disciples of Jesus not fast? Or why do you pray in this way and the disciples of Jesus not pray in this way? And there's already some growing competition or sense of separateness, it seems, amongst their ways of embodying Torah. When Jesus responds, go and tell John these things, we don't have the rest of the narrative. We know that they leave, they return to John. They must have been able to articulate very strongly, orally, exactly as Jesus had said. And I just really, really wish we had that scene available to us. I really wish we could have seen what it was like for John to have asked that question, have worked up the courage to finally put that out there, and then to get these questions responded to with these words. I don't know if John immediately started happy dancing in his cell, But you know what I imagine him doing? And this is purely speculative. I imagine John doing some of this and and saying, okay, 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 yeah, yeah, okay. You know what it's like to talk to yourself as your eyes are welling up and you're trying to remember You're really, really trying to remember something that you've committed to or something that you feel in your guts is somehow possible or real or true, but it's so hard to believe. It's so hard to believe because you are in a really, really difficult spot yourself. And so your next fill in the blank, and please don't hear this as trite, is when things get messier, try to find and celebrate the good that's still happening. Not saying, just think about all those around you and be selfless and disregard the really, really hard thing that you are experiencing. No, that's not what I'm saying. When we talked about messiness being complex or complicated, perhaps there is a way for us to experience the difficulties of life and yet exhale for a little bit. And try and see activity and evidence of God's goodness. Perhaps in a way that doesn't feel like it to us, but maybe in the lives of those around you. In a room this large, I can guarantee you that some of you have testament and witness and stories right now of stuff that is so, so good. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are some of us here that it's hard to get a word out of our mouth because we feel so overcome. Isn't that beautiful about being in a space together when we know all of those things exist simultaneously and sometimes we're here and sometimes we're there, but there's opportunity for God to meet us in all of those things? Let's keep reading. And when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. 
What did you go out in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Pause. I grew up hearing that the best compliments are the ones you never hear. Have you heard that that before? The best compliments are the ones that you never hear. And what is implied by that proverb or that idiom or saying is that the way that people choose to speak about us, apart from us, if it is good-hearted in nature, if it speaks to something they've seen in us that is excellent or praiseworthy, those are the best compliments. You know, I think about how this morning we have International Christian Adoptions, the, the pop-up shop in the hallway. And if you haven't already, you can go back there at the end of service and purchase some wonderful things that support their ministry and not just their ministry to children, but to families all around the world and their livelihood and well-being. But oftentimes I think about the many families in our church family who have chosen to endure the invitation of children into their homes, whether through temporary fostering or fostering to adopt or into that adoption process. And I'm looking at some of you out here this morning, and I, I cannot even fathom the things that have been said to your face about what you have participated in. And no one truly understands the complexities of what that may or may not be like. But what I can say is for how wild of a time or a season that has been for you, it's also been really, really fun to hear the ways that people in this church family have spoken about you and your witness to us because of something that you decided to submit to because God put that on your heart. So here's your next fill in the blank. Remember that we don't get to hear everything that others say about us. For good and for bad, there's a philosopher, a theologian who I really appreciate who says, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> I believe him. <laughs> I think if I knew what you were thinking right now, for as much as I already don't like this, I really wouldn't do this. And if we could somehow see what were in other people's brains about us, yeah, it'd be really, really tough. But what a gift to think that we could be a church community or a people who, like Jesus, are willing to engage with difficult times, but behind each other's backs speak in a way that worships God for how he has imaged us and has used us to reflect his goodness. So let's keep reading here. Again, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, known as greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people who heard this, including the tax collectors, acknowledged the justice 
of God because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But by refusing to be baptized by him, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. And so Jesus, knowing this, continues on in verse 31 and says, To what then will I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And what Jesus is intimating here is that regardless of what God has chosen to do, it never seems like it's good enough. It's never going to satisfy what the people really, really want. There's this ending scene in Malachi, which is the final book of what we have as the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Scriptures, Malachi wouldn't be the concluding book. But in the way that we formatted our Bible, Malachi is that final book before what we would term the intertestamental period. That 400 or so years where we feel the, the lack, the silence, the distance before what we celebrate in this season. The incarnation, the stepping into the emptying of God's self to what he has created, his dwelling place that he would make home or pitch his tent among the mess, the people. In Malachi chapter 3, there's this scene where God decides to be incredibly, it seems, the way Malachi puts this vulnerable, and he says, you have spoken harsh words against me, and yet you say, how have we spoken harsh words against you? And then God says, you say, it is vain to serve God. What do we profit from choosing to obey his commands or going about mourning before him? Instead, we count the arrogant, happy, and the evildoers. You see, when God is speaking through the prophet Malachi, he is expressing what we find over and over, that it's really easy to think about our search situation and our circumstance and look up to God and say, this makes absolutely no sense. You're not fixing it. You're not cleaning this up. This is complicated. Why would I even do this? What does it profit me? What do I have to gain if my dedication or my commitment to you doesn't produce the life of blessing or wholeness that I think that I deserve? And I'm not saying that in an obnoxious way. I'm saying that as someone who in my own life, in different seasons, have asked myself, why am I doing this? And for any of you that experience deep tragedy or loss or hurt or even just a stretch of dark days, perhaps you have asked those questions yourself. And I love that Jesus is able to say these things not as a way to make the crowds feel bad. But ironically, it spotlights the fact that he is there with them. So here's your next fill in the blank. Marvel that he's in it with us. Marvel that he's in it with us. 
You see, instead of us just being so surprised that Jesus would go and be with those people, what would happen if, as we've shared before, we would be surprised that he is here with us? So here's your next fill in the blank. Often, what we presently perceive as a mess is an unfolding of his tender mercy. Are the kiddos out there in the hallway? Does anyone know if they're there? Thanks, Elder Williams. I want to bring the kiddos in for this part because they're going to be coming up behind me on stage, and I want to make sure that uh, they hear a little bit of this. Are you guys okay with that? We're going to see legitimate happy dance this morning in song because we've got our wonderful kids that are coming. They're probably on their way, but let me just go into a little part, and then I'll make sure that they get to the stuff. I get to the stuff that I want them to hear. When we say that often what you and I perceive as mess would be the present unfolding of his tender mercies, let's go back to how Zechariah sings over his son, John. And this is the passage that Head read this morning. He says, By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a beautiful picture there. Because of the tender mercies of our God. Now, if you're not quite sure how to understand mercy, let me show you what it's not. You guys ready? Or I'm kind of basically doing the same face. I want you to think for a moment of the look of disgust that you have on your face when you witness behavior that you think is ridiculous. That look of being befuddled or confounded, so confused, like, oh, oh, seriously? Like, are you kidding me? Like, really? Like, really? <laughs> the reason why I show you that is now, now just imagine God to us, okay? Take all of those spatial expressions that are so easy for us to exhibit because of the behavior of those around us. <laughs> I mean, now, just take the exact opposite of that, and whatever you can imagine as so tender. and concerned, and with you in whatever your mess is. That is the redemption and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we have here. Did you know that for contemporary people in Jesus' time, particularly the Stokes, they thought that mercy, they, they would call this the weakness of the soul. <laughs> that if you had mercy in you, if you had a capacity for mercy, you might as well, you don't count. Mercy was not a good thing. And in the judicial system, the fact that judges could have mercy for someone would imply their partiality, which means basically you're a crummy judge. Because there's no reason for you to look at this person and be moved in any sort 
of way. My friends, God's mercy to us is supposed to compel us to think on others differently. And I'll just tell you really quickly, if there's some practical takeaway that you can have from this message, just remember those faces, okay? Because you're going to have them this week. And if you're self-aware enough to recognize that you make the face, then the work of the Holy Spirit is possible in you. I'm just saying, if you can, if you can remember that you do it and you catch yourself in any way, just go, oh. And I, one of the things I say sometimes to my kids is fix your face. Because if you can start at the very least getting your jaw and your cheek muscles to start, you know, loosening up a little bit and not looking so confounded or befuddled at the lives of people around you. And just remember, if God were to do that to you, I don't even know what God would handle doing that to 8 billion people at the same time. It just wouldn't work. So the question for us this morning is how can God's mercy bring you peace in the messiness. I'm going to move this because I'm going to have our little kids come up in just a second. I want, hey kiddos, can you hear me? Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. You guys are so cute. Oh my gosh. Hey, have you had a good time? Are you ready? Are you guys so ready for this? I'm ready. I probably did the fastest sermon that I've ever done to make sure you guys get up here. It's normally like 11.10 or something, and I'm like, oh, no. Hey, I wanted you guys to hear something, okay? You see Miss Linda right over here? Miss Linda, can you raise your hand? Linda is our operations coordinator. She works in our front office, and I often have the opportunity to just, in passing by, get to talk to Lynn, and she's represented by some of her family on this side Lynn raised with Scott seven kids, right, Lynn? Seven? And one of the things I just loved, Lynn, I really, this really hit me. Lynn was sharing that when the kiddos, and some of her are here, and you guys can attest to this, all right? Tell me if it's a real story, because it's really, really godly. <laughs> and I believe it. But one of the things that Lynn would say as the house just looked like seven kids lived in it, and she'd say, like, the dishes were always dirty, and Scott made her these big bins so that she could just put all the clothes, the laundry in without having to fold them. We do that, too. <laughs> and, and in a house where Linda could feel the pressure to have this perfect abode, she would get down on her knees and look in her kids' eyes, and she, she would say, I would choose you every single time. I would choose you every single time. Kills, will you come up? When you think about the mercy of God to you, we could look at him and say, hey, are you going to clean this thing up? Because it's pretty darn messy, this world that you've created. But I appreciate that I can think on a God who says, I would cheese you every single time. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, 
info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.